A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And as we commence the winter season, so it's just a reminder to be in touch with me about sponsorships for episodes, series. Of course, um, if you would like lectures, talks to families, to gatherings, shuls, uh, educational settings, Zoom lectures. Um, virtual tours, um, research projects, get them in now before it's too late, be in touch with me about that. And here we have, um, before we start with today's episode, it's in the news. So, you know, my other weakness in baseball history. So I saw that Whitey Ford uh, died the other day, the chairman of the board, of the, one of the greatest uh, Yankees. In his, New York Yankees history is almost like Jewish history. It's, it's New York, it's baseball. Either way, so that was just um, a piece of history there. So many World Series and everything. Either way, so so we get to um, Abraham J. Heschel, our topic for tonight. In fact, it's the Bardichever's yard site, uh, another day or two, I think, or believe it's like a Bardichev. And Heschel was like he was a descendant of many greats in the Hasidic uh, world. So he was on his mother's side. He was actually a descendant of the the Kedusha Slavi, the Berdichever, as well. So Abraham J. Heschel was uh, one of the most complex characters of the Jewish 20th century and in certain ways experienced in his own life the various shades or even the crisis of Jewish identity during that tumultuous century. He went through all the stages. You know, he had the Polish Hasidic roots and he spent time in Germany during the intellectual, you know, flowering and flourishing of the Weimar Republic. And then he is in the United States during the post-war period when uh, American Jewry struggling uh, with their identity as well. So he kind of lived through his own life, the various shades of Jewish identity um, um, as it was expressed during that time. He's a scion of Hasidic royalty. Um, he came from the Apta Zhinkov Mezhebizh dynasty, um, which is you know founded by the Apta Rav, one of the greatest leaders in Hasidic history, the who was his namesake of Rav Yeshua Heschel, 
uh, one of the four great students, uh, primary students of the Neyem Ali Melech, the Rebbe of Melech of Lezhensk, um, was the Apta Rav. And he was the Rav in Apta, but he was later on the Rav in Mezhebish, where the Baal Shem Tev had previously been. And he built his own base Medrash. When we go to Mezhebish, so where primarily it's all about the Baal Shem Tev, the Baal Shem Tev, the Baal Shem Tev, but there's another shul right near the Baal Shem Tev shul that has also been restored, a big, beautiful, gorgeous shul. That's the Apta Rav shul. And he's buried in the same oil as the Baal Shem Tev. He's right next to the Baal Shem Tev. He was the Rav in Mezhebish as well. And um, he sometimes gets overlooked because everyone's focused on the Baal Shem Tev, but I always try uh, to devote at least some of the time with the groups to talk about the Apta Rav. So either way, so he passed away in Mezhebish in the early 1800s. Um, he was actually the last of all the great uh, students of the Naimi Lamelech to pass away. He was known as the Zkan Ha'admairim, the elder of all the Hasidic tzaddikim of his day um, at his passing. And he starts what's, what, what's originally the Apter dynasty, but his children eventually called, uh, one, some branches are Zhinkov and others are Mezhebizh. They actually stay in, in Mezhebizh. Um, and it goes down for four, five, six generations. And Heschel's father was Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Heschel. And he was the Mezhebizh Rebbe uh, in Warsaw. Um, his fa- his son, he was the son of an, um, another namesake, Avram Yeshua Heschel, the Mezhebezh Rebbe, right? So Heschel is named after his grandfather, who was named after the Apterov. Um And so it's a straight, you know, father to son, Mezhebezh dynasty. So he comes from a rabbinic family. Not only that, but Heschel's father, this Rabbi Moshe Mordechai that I mentioned, he was the son-in-law of Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, who was the Novominska Rebbe. Uh, the first Novominska Rebbe. Um, but um, but uh, this Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Heschel's father uh, passed away young, and his mother remarried. She remarried one of the most famous uh, tzaddikim of the day, Rabbi David Moshe Friedman of Chortkiv, uh, from the Rizhen dynasty. So he's raised by him. Um, and um, so, But then he marries into the Perlau Novominsk family, like I said, so the next Novominsk Rebbe, Rabalt Yisrael Shimon Perlau Novominsk, was was his was his brother-in-law, um, and uh, and uh, in this this Rabbi Moshe Mordechai, in fact, is buried in the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw. So we go when we go to the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw, we pass by his oil also. He has an oil in the main section of all the great uh, Rebbes, and point out to the groups that he may not be such a famous Rebbe, but first of all, if he's the Mezhebish Rebbe, that's already a prominent uh, title, and also he's the father of Abraham J. Heschel. Um, he passes away also at a young age, in his 40s, when Heschel was about 10 years old. Um, so so um, he, Heschel is, is essentially raised by um, his uncle, Rebbe Altisol Shimon Perla, the Novominska Rebbe. So what, event, what, what, is, what, what essentially happens is that Reb Nachum Mordechai Perlau, the future Novominska Rebbe, is more like a brother than a cousin because he's raised in his home. So he's very, very close with Novominsk and the Novominska family. Um, and interestingly enough, we said that there are all these people named Avram Yeshua Heschel, um, which is Heschel's name. So his brother-in-law had the same name. In other words, the his cousin was Avram Yeshua Heschel, who later became famous as the Kapishnitzer Rebbe. A legendary Balchesed and Ayav Yisrael. So he was a cousin, and then he later married his sister. 
So you have Rabbi Vram Yeshua Heschel of Kapishnitz, who's a brother-in-law of Abraham J. Heschel, uh, of the, the, the subject of our episode, and they're both descendants of all these other Rabbi Vram Yeshua Heschels. And like many Hasidic dynasties, it gets quite confusing to follow the whole family connections. But either way, Heschel grows up in the heartland of the Polish Hasidic world in the pre-World War I and interwar Warsaw, the capital of the Jewish world, the capital of the Polish Hasidic world, and he becomes an orphan. Like I said, he's raised by his uncle, the Novomitsk Rebbe, and, uh, and, and he becomes almost like a brother to Rabbi Nachum Mordechai, the, the future Novomitsk Rebbe, and like, kind of like a cousin-slash-uncle to the Novomitsk Rebbe who just passed away, Rabbi Yaakov Perlau. Um, now in Warsaw, he, I, I couldn't verify this for sure, but it seems that he got smicha from Rabbi Menachem Zemba, the, the, the head of the the uh, Warsaw Rabbinical Bezden, when he was 16 years old. I could not find this out for sure, but I, it seems that it was the case. And um, and then, so he's, he's on the path to greatness. It went through some sort of crisis when he was still young, and a shidduch didn't work out, and his mother got him evaluated, which was also quite revolutionary for the time, especially in Hasidic circles, by the famed religious... A psychologist, a fellow by the name of Fischl Schneerson, who was a descendant, a religious, religious uh, fellow, but he's descendant of the Samach Tzedek of, of Lubavitch. He was also a fascinating character, eventually settled in, he was from Warsaw there also at the time also, and he settled later on in Tel Aviv, a whole story also. And uh, Heschel eventually leaves Warsaw, goes to Vilna, to a gymnasium, and he graduates, and then he heads off to Germany, to Berlin, and he goes to university. And the, he, um, he's in the University of Berlin, and then he's in the very famous uh, Higher Institute for Jewish Studies, the Science of Judaism, an institute founded by Abraham Geiger in the 1870s, which was the most prominent uh, Jewish intellectual academic institution to, to, uh, the, for the study of the science of Judaism in the world at the time, and uh, Jewish research. And during the time of the Weimar Republic, which is what we're talking about now in the 1920s, it had a golden age. And... Um, uh, um, uh, Heschel, during this time that he was in the university, and in parallel to that, at this Jewish institute, he wrote a doctorate on the prophets, on the prophet, the ancient prophets of Israel, which became a subject that he would return to his entire life. And at the time, uh, this this institute had great scholars that he studied under, like Hanoch Elbeck and Leo Beck and and uh, and others. Um, and he got a second uh, rabbinical ordination there. We'll say, you know, very different than his first rabbinical ordination. Either way, so he spends time in Berlin, he eventually becomes a teacher of Talmud at this Jewish institute. With the rise of the Nazis to power, eventually in 1936, he moves to Frankfurt, where his good friend Martin Buber has him replace him. Buber was moving to Israel, and he has him replace him at the uh, Jewish Institute in Frankfurt to teach Jewish studies. So Heschel's in Frankfurt for a couple of years, but then in 1938, in October 1938, Heschel is, of course, a Polish citizen. He's from Warsaw, never got German citizenship. So he's deported. In October, the Nazi regime deports all Polish Jews living in Germany back to Poland. And and uh, they, the Polish government didn't take them back in. So they were stuck on a border town called Jabunshin. And this was eventually the catalyst for Kristallnacht, which is quite famous and because uh, Herschel Greenspan's family was also on the border, and Herschel Greenspan, who was a student in, in a Paris university, and he went into the German embassy, 
in uh, in Paris and shot Ernst von Rath, a secretary at the German embassy, and and that was Goebbels' use of Goebbels' excuse to uh, perpetrate the uh, Kristallnacht program. That's a whole story about Kristallnacht, which I'm not going to get into now. So either way, Heschel was one of those famous uh, um, uh, um, Polish Jews living in Germany who was deported. He eventually gets into back into Poland, and he's back home in Warsaw, and he's there for almost a year. He teaches in the Jewish Institute in Warsaw. And a few weeks before the war breaks out, he makes it to London. The Hebrew Union College, the Reform Judaism Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati was able to provide him with a visa. So he comes to Hebrew Union College and he teaches there. And he's there till 1945. He's there for about five years, six years, during the the war years, essentially. But he leaves because uh, the Hebrew Union College was not up to his religious standards. And he was more religious, more traditional than that. And he's hired by Finkelstein, by Louis Finkelstein at the Jewish Theological Seminary of Conservative Judaism. He's hired there to teach Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, Jewish philosophy, Hasidus. This is the golden age of the seminary. This is when Louis Ginsburg and Saul Lieberman and many others were teaching there. So uh, so Heschel joins the faculty. It was actually during the war years when he was still at Hebrew Union College. He was probably the only one from Hebrew Union College to do this, but the, he joined the rabbis march on Washington. He was one of the, you know, he, he remained Orthodox. He remained traditional. Um, and he joined the several hundred rabbis marching on Washington to protest the inaction of the administration uh, on you know, behalf of European Jewry. And Heschel lost his entire family in the war. They all stayed in Warsaw. And his mother and his sisters, they're all killed um, by the Nazis. And he, he stays traditional. He had some, you know, strange or interesting ideas and beliefs uh, you know, and expressed in his lectures and books, and but in his personal observance, it seems that he stayed somewhat traditional. He wore yarmulke and had this huge head of hair, which you know fit him as a philosopher. But he would wear this yarmulke on top of that big head of hair. Um, in the 1950s, he wanted to move to Israel, but he was refused an academic appointment by Hebrew University. It was blocked, either till today we don't know who blocked it, it was either blocked by Professor Ephraim Elimelech Orbach, who was also an interesting personality, or perhaps even by Gershom Sholem himself, which it's unclear why he blocked it, I don't know if he, they, got, they didn't get along or something. So either way, Heschel uh, stayed in, in, in the United States, he stayed in the seminary till, till his passing. What he eventually did is that in his later years, he, he leaves the ivory, ivory tower, so to speak, and gets very involved in politics and becomes a social activist. And he joins the civil rights uh, movement, very, becomes very active. The, the background of that is, the, you know, we're talking about the 1950s and 60s when the civil rights movement uh, becomes a very prominent uh, on, on the American scene. Starting in the 1950s, you have the bus sit-ins in Alabama and Rosa Parks, and then you have the lynchings and all kinds of stuff going down in the Deep South. And and uh, in the early '60s, it becomes it becomes more uh, more prominent, a real movement. In 1963, you have uh, Martin Luther King's uh, "I Have a Dream" speech, and then there's a series of marches in Selma, uh, Alabama, the march to Montgomery across across a bridge, which name escapes me at this point. And he becomes Heschel joins the movement. Many prominent Jews actually uh, joined the movement. There was a large percentage of the northern whites who were active in the civil rights movement were Jews, um, interestingly enough. And one of them was Heschel. Uh, so Heschel became close friends with Martin Luther King. And he was, in fact, King was supposed to attend a Seder 
a Pesach Seder by him before he was assassinated. Uh, I'm sorry, and he was assassinated before he had a chance to attend the Seder. Um, and, and the third march on Selma, the third march it was from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama in 1965, so the Heschel joined the march, and he was he's seen in the pictures, uh, you know, right up there with Martin Luther King and some other uh, religious uh, leaders. In fact, many of the the uh, African American organizers of the march wore yarmulkes. They called them freedom caps because they were they were you know the the idea was that they were rabbis marching, as, as so to speak. Heschel said at, about the march, "My feet were praying." In other words, he felt it was a religious act. And in fact, if we mention the Washington March. As far as I know, um, he was probably the only rabbi who marched both in Washington in the Rabbi's March in 1943 and then in Selma in the Civil Rights March in 1965. He saw the Civil Rights Movement as activism, as an extension of his religious philosophy, the call of the prophets, the seeing the common ground between Jews as a minority, as, as Jews who had been a persecuted minority, appreciated the freedom that the United States had offered and what African Americans were experiencing as a minority and the struggle for their freedom and civil rights. And he saw uh, a lot of uh, things to equate between the two uh, uh, movements and therefore he felt it was a Jewish obligation to go ahead and support it. And, uh, and it's also a result of his experience exp living under the Nazi regime in the 1930s and losing his entire family in Poland during the Holocaust. And his political activism was part of his overall outlook to return to the the pathos and the spiritual experience of Jewish life and answer what he called the call of the prophets. And this continued with his later on other activism, his opposition to the Vietnam War and his uh, proponent, uh, he was a proponent of interfaith dialogue, all kinds of interesting ideas that he had, which um, which not only was was in traditional Jews were uh, were were not so supportive of, but even in the seminary, they were not so supportive of it. They didn't like it in the seminary, his employers in the seminary didn't like it that he was so heavily involved in politics and, you know, made the seminary uh, look, uh, you know, people looked at it with askance that that, that uh, he's associated with an institution like that. And and they didn't like his Hasidic philosophy. So he had issues within the seminary also. He was a bit of a, a loner. He did his own thing, uh, what he felt was right. And uh, he didn't really care what other people uh, thought. Um, so he had an interesting uh, philosophy, as I said, which I'm definitely not... Uh, competent to, to even talk about because I don't know it. Um, I just know the the uh, historical context of of where he acted. He has some interesting writings. He wrote um, on a lot of you know spiritual and 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 philosophical ideas, but he did write on history too. He wrote a lot on Hasidus, uh, the Hasidic world. He wrote on the cuts on Kutsk. One of his favorite people was the Kutsker, and um, he was. Um, it was a saying. He, he was one of his favorite sayings was was actually of the Kutzker. He would say, "Where is, where is God? Wherever you let him in," and that was something that he uh, um, used to say and and and, uh, and incorporate into his uh, worldview. Um, but he, when he wrote the this the book on the Kutzker, he wrote it in Yiddish. He felt that the only way to express, excuse me, to express the truth and the integrity of Kutzk was only in the original language that it was spoken in Poland. And therefore, he felt that he can't write on Kutsk in English or German or Hebrew or any of the other languages that he was competent to write in. 
He wrote it actually in Yiddish. He did write on other. He was a he pioneered some Hasidic writing. He wrote on the circle of the Baal Shem Tov, people who hadn't been written on before, Abgershin Kitover and Rapinchas Akaritz and other original early leaders of, of the Hasidic world who had not been uh, written much about because the focus was primarily on the Baal Shem Tov until that point. And Heschel did expand it and write on those other figures as, as well. Um, an interesting ending to the story is that when he was on his deathbed, he, he, he didn't die that old. He was about 65, I think, 64, 65. And, and uh, the Novominsk he wasn't the Novominsk Rebbe yet. He was, his father was still alive. But Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, who was the future Novominsk Rebbe, he went to visit Heschel in the hospital on his deathbed. And um, he couldn't speak. So they had an exchange in Hebrew on notes of paper. And uh, and Heschel then wrote again in Hebrew on this note. This is like his wish to his it was his cousin, but he felt almost like a, like a like a like an uncle to him because he had grown up in his home, in his father's home, um, in his grandfather's home. Uh, he wrote to him, "Please have me buried near my Hasidic relatives," and he affirmed his identity and his Hasidic heritage on his deathbed, and that's actually where he was buried. So it was a very complex character, a lot of sides and facets to him, and experienced pretty much the full gamut of the Jewish story of the 20th century. And uh, the nuance and the complexity is is what's important to remember and like that. And there were many others like him who came from Eastern Europe to Berlin in the 1920s and 30s and had that experience of a traditional Jewish upbringing and then ended up in this intellectual ferment of Berlin that it was during the Weimar Republic and then moved on to either Israel or the United States in the post-war and left an impact on the Jewish world. And Heschel's just one of them. So it's definitely an interesting chapter in Jewish history. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, uh, tours, trips, uh, lectures, sponsorships, and uh, virtual tours. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.